Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Before I introduce our guest for this week, I wanted to be able to to remind you that I have a support group for former cult members, for families and friends of those in cults, and also people who have been in relationships with controllers and who are breaking free and have been in what feels to them like what we call a one-on-one cult, a two-person cult. It meets every other Wednesday night online. You can find out more about it through emailing me at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com or at BernsteinLMFT at gmail.com. There's also been some interest that's been expressed to me about starting a support group for former cult members and families and people who have been in systems of control who are living in the UK, which will mean that I would shift the time that the group is offered, but I'm more than happy to offer support wherever it's needed. So if you are in an area where you know there are others who are looking for the same resource, as it needs to be at least a number of people to make it a group, then please let me know and I'll set something up with you. For today, we have Claire Headley, who is a former high-ranking member of the Sea Organization, the fraternal religious order comprised of Scientology's most dedicated members. Claire, like her husband Mark, was raised in Scientology from an early age and worked at the infamous Scientology compound known as Gold Base, from where they both eventually escaped. In the aftermath of their escape, Mark and Claire fought Scientology in state and federal court in California for three and a half years over unfair labor practices, forced abortion, and human trafficking. Their incredible story and harrowing escape were depicted in Mark's book, Blown for Good, Behind the Iron Curtain of Scientology. It's a great book. It makes your heart race. And he gets that kind of intensity down in the book, just about what it's like day to day on that base and also during the escape. Claire has now been happily married to Mark for the past 28 years and is the mother of their three boys and a business owner loving life in Colorado. I was so happy to be able to have a conversation with Claire and we were able to set up a second conversation, which will actually be able to be released next week. So you'll get to hear from Claire two weeks in a row. Here she is now. I am so excited, so happy to be able to talk to Claire Headley today and just being able to see you for all those who are going to be listening to this or watching it on YouTube. It's just really lovely to be able to see you again and to be able to catch up and hear about your experiences and also from the perspective of being out of something and moving on with your life and how you do that and 
how you help other people to do that and the role that you play as much as you want to talk about that, because I'm sure you're not used to just talking about yourself or doing something that feels like bragging because you're quite the opposite. (laughs) Thanks for understanding that about me. (laughs) So there are a lot of unsung heroes along the way with people who have come out of things who have asked for help and they've been able to kind of lean on your very capable and strong shoulders. So Claire, do you want to say a little bit about yourself and then we'll go and start talking about your story. Sure. Yes, absolutely. And thank you very much. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Speaking of unsung heroes, I consider you one of my unsung heroes since you helped me incredibly, honestly, when I was in an extremely vulnerable position during our lawsuit, but we'll get to that. So yeah, I was born in England into Scientology My mother joined the SEA organization, so signed a billion-year contract as a single mother when I was four years old. From age four to age 10, I was a cadet in the SEA organization. So basically, I was in full-time care of other SEA org members being groomed myself to be a SEA org member. When I was 10, my mother left the SEA organization but remained in Scientology. And then from 10 to 16, we ended up moving to the U.S. I did more Scientology training than I ever did actual school. My parents never put me back in school when we moved to the U.S. when I was 13. And then eventually I wound up back in the SEA organization at age 16. I was then, by September 1991, promoted to their headquarters where I worked from 1991 until I made my escape in January 2005. And so since January 2005, my husband and I have worked very hard to build our lives. And um, obviously, we now have three boys, (laughs) two of whom I can't even believe are now teenagers, one learning to drive. It's just crazy. I worked in Religious Technology Center for eight years, which was David Miscavige's organization. At one point, I was considered number three. I was junior to Marty Rathbun, who was junior to David Miscavige. Not that that meant I had any freedom or power that others didn't, but nonetheless, I rose to the top and then crashed back down. (laughs) Right. And, you know, that's actually a theme I hear about a lot in Scientology, where you and other groups, it's almost like you, your past behavior and devotion, you don't seem to accrue points. Suddenly, it's this zero-sum game, and you're starting all over again. I think of it as this sort of very awful game of shoots and ladders. If anyone has played the game shoots and ladders, if anyone's been an unlucky enough parent or babysitter to have to play shoots, it's so frustrating. Because you're almost there, and then you slide all the way back down to the bottom. Yeah, I would say Scientology is like Hunger Games meets Shoots and Ladders kind of thing. Anyway, but and ironically, in my case, the only thing I ever did wrong, at least what caused my ultimate crash, was refusing to divorce my husband, Mark. I'd been pressured to divorce him for going on five years. Ultimately, that's why I was booted out of RTC. None of it makes any sense. It's all illogical, but that kind of is the short version of a very long story in my case. You're telling a story that is like an Alice in Wonderland, you know, Mad Hatter's Tea Party story. At the time, 
it sort of makes sense. And then you try to translate it to the outside world and it all sort of crumbles and it doesn't follow any logic. And then it, I think it becomes hard to think, wow, this was my life. And at the time it was so important. And now it's a lot of just thoughts and words and things that don't come together. Yes, definitely. I mean, for me, when I left, it was very hard to come to terms with where to even start. I mean, I can remember feeling completely broken as a human, incapable of emotion. You know, I just had reached this terrible demise emotionally and physically. I, I mean, I'm five seven, and I lost so much weight. I had lost like 30 pounds. I weighed less than 100 pounds. And I thought I had cancer because I had adrenal gland exhaustion to where my adrenal glands were lumps and I thought it was cancer. And honestly, funnily enough, at the time, I really thought that like if I were walking down the street to any person in the outside world, I felt not logically, but I just felt that the most obvious thing about me was that I was a declared suppressive person. (laughs) Of course, I quickly came to learn that Scientology's labels of me meant nothing except the power I granted them. And so, you know, just realizing that my life is what I make of it was extremely empowering for me. Right. Okay. I love this idea, though, that it's the power you granted them. You know, when you're raised in something, it's the power that you're used to having kind of siphoned off of you. Right. Like something is this sort of parasitic force around you, draining you and also taking control of you at the same time. Right. That you could have this sort of near adrenal failure and then also 100 pounds roundabout at five, seven. And then feeling that they had some sort of control over you enough where then walking through the world, you're right. You're thinking you're wearing the sign that says, you know, SP, which is very interesting. So we haven't yet heard about the cadets. So if we can just talk a little bit more about those years of growing up and then come back to the escape and then moving forward from that, what did your role mean that you were a cadet? As I said, my mom joined the Sea Organization when I was four. We moved from Manchester, England, which is where I was born, to St. Hill, which is Scientology's headquarters in England, in West Sussex. And on arrival there, I was immediately put into the nursery with the younger kids. So there was maybe 40 or 50 kids ranging in age from six weeks old to four, with maybe two or three adults supervising all of those kids. And so, for example, one of my first memories, <laughs> as you would, I don't, I don't know, nightmares, memories, whatever you want to call it, same difference really in this context, was that there was another little boy who was just kept pinching me and physically hurting me. And so I went to the grown up, as you're taught to do as a child. And uh, so she was one of the nannies, and she just said, Well, you're pulling it in. So go deal with it. And in Scientology, they believe that if you're having something bad happen to you, whatever that might be, it's because you've done something that 
is then causing you to have this bad thing happen in your life. So therefore, you're the cause of it. So it's up to you to fix it. So as a four-year-old asking an adult for help because I was getting bruised by this kid pinching me, to be told, go deal with it, <laughs> was, you know, like, wake up call of, shit, I'm on my own here. <laughs> no recourse. I basically have to suck it up and deal with it. And that's it. Wow. And that really sets in motion this idea of perpetrators get a pass. Somehow they get away with it. And it's the victims who are the ones who have to somehow address it. Like they have fewer rights somehow and fewer protections than the perpetrators. That's absolutely true. Definitely. And I've seen that through my history in Scientology many, many times. And much more serious circumstances, too, than just another kid pinching me. But, you know, sexual abuse, neglect, all of those things. It was a very elaborate smoke and mirrors system where it all comes back to you. Everything's you're doing, no one else is doing. And no, like you said, perpetrator, criminal, or anything else is going to experience any consequences since you're the one causing it in the first place, according to Scientology. It's like this sort of trickle down notion that I think comes originally from someone who can't take responsibility and doesn't want to have to take responsibility. Right. I feel like that setting up kind of the social construct or the environment or the rules around that, you know, well, it's not my fault. It's actually not so different than a lot of these large group awareness trainings where they you know, if you have been molested or something has happened to you, you have to sit in the victim's row because you're the victim here and you have to get over your victim mentality. But what about, you know, the ones who did this to you? They just go off walking and singing. So, yeah. So you were on your own. And wow, at such a young age. Yeah. And you're right, by the way, because victim is such a negative term in Scientology in general, just as a comment, like, um, you know, the amount, number of times I would be like, oh, stop being a victim. You're just being a victim, you know, or victim is one negative term and um, sympathy is the other thing that is extremely negative in Scientology is considered to be very, it's a very bad thing to give somebody sympathy. <laughs> Oh, okay. So please explain that. Well, what is bad about that? <laughs> so basically, um, you know, I'm sure you've heard of the tone scale. Yes. I know where I am on the tone scale. I've been told <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm pretty low down. Well, so the tone scale is Hubbard concoction of human emotions. And basically if you're high on the tone scale, then you are a positive person, you have positive influences, you're doing good things. And usually that's as a result of having advanced in Scientology that you raise up the tone scale. Well, then if you're lower toned, that's when other things come in. So from Hubbard's perspective, for example, and this is why Scientology is homophobic, all the terminology is homophobic. So I don't even want to repeat it. But the point being that he says, if a man is in a relationship with another man, that's one one on the tone scale. 1.1 is covert hostility. The imagery that Hubbard gives of that is a person smiling with a dagger behind their back. That's the imagery of it. And so sympathy is down 
right around the point of 1.1 on the tone scale, covert hostility. And essentially it's the same kind of concept as what Hubbard says, is anyone who's giving you sympathy, they're really just trying to bring you down. It's fake and it's not real and, and all of that. Uh, there's so much, there's so much that's, that's wrong about that. But I think also just people growing up in that being told they're not supposed to give sympathy. I've talked to a lot of people who have a lot of resultant guilt from that, that they didn't help when they could have, or they should have, or their conscience was telling them something other than what the church was telling them. Yes. And in, in my opinion, the result of Scientology's approach ends up being that it damages your ability to empathize with other people. So I was in the cadet org and quickly learned that I was on my own. I was going to have to fend for myself and just make the best of a terrible situation. And my mom was nowhere around. I mean, initially I would get to see her for an hour a day over dinner time. She would come to visit me for one hour each day when I was four And then on the weekend, she would get to spend two hours with me. Then a couple of years into this experience, the family time was canceled. So then the only time I saw her was if I saw her briefly in the morning when when I was getting up to go to school and on the weekend, two or three hours. And that was it. And then at age five, I graduated from the nursery. And so I was then made a cadet. And essentially, that was like Lord of the Flies in every respect. The kids were given jobs. They were given assigned to run each other. We were in teams of five or six, and we were run on statistics and checklists. So we had a checklist of all the things we were supposed to do in a given day, like brush your teeth, make your bed. You know, we would do cleaning and manual labor in the birthing, which was where all the adults lived, the kids would do, you know, mop all the floors, polish the floors, help in the kitchen. And we're not just talking like kitchen as in your kitchen or my kitchen. It's a kitchen that is big enough to serve 200 people meals or maybe 100 people meals. It's one memory that sticks out is So I slept in a dorm with all the other girls. There was a girl's dorm and a boy's dorm. And we didn't have sleepovers or play dates or any of that kind of stuff. So sometimes if you were friends with someone, they would be like, oh, come sleep in, sleep in my bed. Let's have a sleepover. So one day I was sleeping in my friend's bed and we were just like toe to toe kind of thing. And she happened to be on the upper bunk and I fell out in the middle of the night landed on some wooden planks, broke my collarbone and cut open my head. And there was a security guard. He was night watch to make sure people didn't escape during the night. Well, he, I guess, heard me crying or I don't, I don't remember that part. But either way, he carried me up to my mom's room. And the next morning, I adamantly insisted that I go to school anyway. That might sound crazy, but I went to public school because my mom, as a CERC member, could not afford to send me to Scientology school, ironically. So I went to public school, and that was the only normal thing about my life, and I loved going to school. It was like I clung to that, and I excelled, and I did really well. Anyway, so I demanded to go to school anyway, and I guess they didn't notice that I'd cut open my head. 
and I was trying not to complain about my arm hurting like heck. Anyway, needless to say, the teacher did notice. And at lunchtime, I was called in to see the headmistress. And it only occurred to me about 25 years later when I was reflecting on that conversation with the headmistress that she thought I'd been abused, which technically I had. Nobody had shoved me downstairs or anything like that, but I was sleeping in a room where there was just wooden planks laying on the floor and I fell on them. Anyway, even at that age, I think I was seven, I just had been rigorously trained. You never say anything bad about Scientology to anybody under any circumstances ever. So I didn't. And I just said, oh, I fell out of bed. No details. She didn't know I lived in a dorm with 30 other girls. And I, I mean, I'm sure she had an idea because the cadets at the public school had a very bad reputation for being unkempt, stinky, dirty. That was the reputation. I was one kid. My mom was single. So in my case, I probably had more a little more parental attention than some of the other kids who had multiple siblings. So I personally didn't have that reputation, but I was still lumped in with with everybody else. And the cadets tended to be known to have terrible manners and falling asleep in class, whatever, all kinds of things. Again, looking back on it, I wish child services would have been involved in some way, but they weren't. You know, it was the 80s in England, and I don't think there just wasn't any oversight of what Scientology was doing. Another time, my friend and I were just playing at St. Hill at the headquarters, and this 40-year-old man was trying to get us to go to his office. I just was like, no, I don't want to go. Well, my friend went with him by herself, and he molested her. And the next day when this came out, my mom's question to me was, well, why didn't you go? Did you know something was going to happen? Like it was my fault. And, you know, like, no, I didn't. I just don't like creepy men. Sorry. I go to school where they teach me stranger danger. Anyway, it was just so bizarre. And of course, nothing like that ever gets reported to the authorities. Scientology deals with it internally, which means that they don't and that perpetrators are allowed to continue getting away with crimes against children. And it was a very, very bad situation. Wow. From that point on, and, you know, just also going to public school, being in pain, having secrets, you know, just having so much that you couldn't say. I'm sure that's very wearing. Yes. At that point, going to public school, I was well aware that my life was not the same as my friends, for example. That's all I ever wanted, really. At that age, was I, I was just like, I just want to live in a normal house and have a normal family and be able to see my mom. And, you know, it felt like those years from age four to 10, my biggest struggle was just wanting to spend time with my mother. That's it. Every week when I would get to spend those two or three hours with her, She would have to go back to work and I would be crying and crying and crying for hours and hours on end. Since it was the weekend, sometimes I would say, well, I want to go with her to work. So I'd have to do this whole proposal, this whole written proposal saying, I would like approval to do something other than the approved schedule. And I want to go spend time with my mom. And I would have to say why I wanted to do this, you know, who was going to cover my 
duties while I was gone, all this other crazy stuff. And nine times out of 10, that would get disapproved anyway. It was just a nonstop struggle. I mean, I don't know if you know this part, but what was your mom being told about why this was the ideal way to raise kids that you don't actually see them? Yeah. Well, so kids were were and are considered a distraction in Scientology. Like, so, you know, it's, it's ironic to me that in um, the Harry Potter books, you know, Voldemort, all of that, it's like, oh, it's for the greatest good or it's for the greater good. Well, Scientology uses that exact same line. Well, it's for the greater good. It's better for my mom to be saving the planet than it is for her to raise her daughter. I was a roadblock preventing her from saving humanity. So, you know, I needed to shut up and get out of her way, basically. Which says so much about self-concept as you're growing up and how you develop self-esteem around this. I mean, it feels like an impossible task and only something you can develop, I think, maybe once you leave. There's so many snares and pitfalls and things that you can fall into. Having been raised in it, for me, the mechanism by which, you know, if something bad happens, I go, oh, why is this happening to me? What did I do? (laughs) You know what I mean? It's taken me a long time to just kind of push that to arm's length and go, that's not what's going on here. You don't always have complete control over life. Life is not always black or white. Yes, there's many things in life that are, you know, what's right for you. You know, what's moral, you know, what's not, you know, you know, all you can do at the end of the day in terms of what I've come to believe is you have to make the decisions that you yourself can live with. Can you look yourself in the mirror at the end of the night and go, I can live with the choices I've made. Maybe that sounds selfish, but I don't consider it selfish. Like I will help as many people as I possibly can, but also I have to do what's right for my kids. I have to make some hard choices sometimes. And in Scientology, they kind of try to program those so that you just always make the choice that's, it's not what's best for you. It's what's best for Scientology. <laughs> that's that's what they program you to do. And for me, that was my programming from age four to age 30. So, you know, I was 30 years old when I left Scientology. So I've now been out of Scientology for 16 years. So just over half my life. That's why I think it's realistic to consider it a work in progress. Yeah. Oh, very much so. Very much so. And I think also, you know, I've talked to a number of parents who raise their kids in this and who they feel that they did wrong by their kids. They feel they were wronged by being convinced that really abandoning them was for the greater good, because what did Scientology ever do to really improve the world? But really, in real time, what they were doing was abandoning their children psychologically and physically. And, you know, there are a lot of people I talked to who are trying to make up for lost time and trying to make amends for that, even though they didn't put themselves in that situation, knowingly that that, that's what was going to be happening. I agree. And I agree that's extremely difficult. I will say that for the longest time, I was justifying why my mom made the choices she made. And it was like, well, you know, I don't really have perspective on that. When I became a mother, 
that dramatically changed because as my children have grown up, it's kind of struck me like, wow, that's how old I was when X, Y, and Z happened. And it's been an awakening, including, you know, latent anger and latent emotions and frustration with my mom that I never, that I, I didn't have perspective on as a child, but I do now as a mother. And I would only say to those parents that are feeling that guilt, I can't imagine that the burden of that. On the other hand, kudos to them for trying to come to terms with that because my mother hasn't, (laughs) you know what I mean? She's on Scientology's hate sites doing hate videos about me, as is my stepdad. And that's a whole other level of hurt. But on the other hand, I also go, that's why Scientology is dangerous and evil. Why should I take that personally? Right. Okay. Oh, I so I did not know that. We'll come back to that fact that your mom and stepdad are participating in hate videos against you. Wow. Okay. Keeping with the chronology then, so then at some point along the way, you moved to a different location or you met Mark or like sort of what was happening in your young adult life? So backing up a little bit, when I was eight is when my mom married my stepdad. And we were still in England at that time. He was not in the Sea Organization, which is extremely unusual because she was. And so she had to get special approval to marry him. And ultimately that ended up resulting in her leaving the Sea Organization. That's why, because she'd married somebody who was not a member. And he actually legally adopted me in England. So by my birth certificate, he is my father. And even that was strange because I didn't know until more recently that my real father, he was in Scientology when I was born. He and my mom both were in Scientology together. And when I was two, he started drifting away and didn't want anything more to do with Scientology. I was never told the reason for them splitting up was Scientology. I was told that it was because he was cheating on her. He probably was. I I don't even judge that. But I'm positive that the original source of the problem was Scientology, not what came afterwards. And they were divorced. My mom joined this organization. Cut to now I'm eight and she remarries to this guy who's an American. And he adamantly insisted that he wanted to adopt me. And the reason he wanted to adopt me is so that my real father would never have access to me. Now, why he thought that my dad would ever want access to me anyway, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I never had a relationship with him. It's just, it's one of those kind of like, hmm, okay. Either way, he adopts me. My mom then left the Sea Organization when I was 10 or 11. And for two years, we were living in East Grinstead as public Scientologists. During those two years, I got a scholarship to attend Greenfields, which is the UK version of the Scientology school system. So it was a Scientology school. During the time I was there, one of the teachers, the male sports teacher, was molesting all the boy students or a number of boy students. And he ended up going to jail. That was also covered up by Scientology so as to not create bad PR. But you can, it's it's available online. If you Google Mark Kent Greenfields, you see that this guy went to jail. Anyway, 
so yeah, I was two years at the Scientology school, and then we moved to the U.S. So from age 13 to 16, I was living with my family for the most part in Burbank, California, and never went back to official school. I did this two-hour day schooling program with a, a lady who was an OT8 that did, it was like study hall. That's one of my regrets is not having the opportunity to have had a decent education as a child. And now, you know, it's now a very close to my heart with my oldest in high school and another one about to go into high school. Ironically, my mom always said, I really want you to get a proper education. She just didn't insist on it. I was getting hounded by recruiters from age 13 to when I was 16. And by the way, backing up a little bit too, I was required to start signing a billing year contract starting when I was roughly seven, saying that I was going to commit to a billion years and that I was going to be a Sea Org member. And then when we moved to the US, there would be recruiters showing up at our house. They would stay until midnight or later trying to get me to start right away. I just felt hounded and haunted and super stressed out. And when I went to my parents saying, hey, can you please help me? I cannot get these recruiters off my back. And their response was, well, you've done the professional TR course, which is the communication training drills in Scientology. I had done up to the professional level. So they said, you've done the professional TRs course. So therefore, you should be able to handle any communication situation, no matter how tough, because that's the one of the end products of the stated end products of that course. You're not allowed to graduate until you say, yes, I can handle any communication situation, no matter how tough. So that's what they pair it back to me. And at that point, I just felt, I felt that as much as I had wanted to have a life, like I had goals as a child, I wanted to excel in school and go to Oxford and be a teacher. And I love teaching. I, like I used to remember things that my teacher did with us in public school and be like, when I'm a teacher, I'm going to do this with my students. It's so awesome. Or when I was sick, I would have to just stay by myself in the Sea Org birthing, you know, no supervision. I'd have to just be there by myself with my fever or my tonsillitis or my whatever, because my mom would be at work and I would have like pretend roll call with all my little students and oh we're gonna do class <laughs> and then when I was nine my mom said well if you want to be a teacher you're gonna have to study psychology and it was like basically her way of putting the kibosh on my whole plan because of course we all know Scientologists are more than directly opposed to psychology and psychiatry I don't even know the right word that would express the level of opposition from a Scientologist. They would say uh, psychologists and psychiatrists are implanters on the whole track. <laughs> right. Okay. Not fine. that that means anything to anyone in English. But <laughs> in English. <laughs> it's like, right. you know, uh -huh. it's like you may as well say they're Satan's soldiers, you know, I don't know. I don't know what to say. Right. It's, it's just extreme. Not, yeah, it is extreme. And that's why I am where I am on the tone scale. <laughs> and it's, it's also not true that you have to study psychology to become a teacher because I am also a teacher. I was a teacher before I became a therapist. So that was just some sort of manufactured way to keep you off track. I want to point out this 
interaction that here you had the wolves at your door, you're a kid and it's just you. And you have all of these people pushing in are relentless and you go to your parents to help you. They tell you, you should be equipped to handle that situation and that kind of communication. I hear in that, that they were not equipped to handle that communication, that you were bringing a problem to them. They did not have a solution. They put it back on you. And so I don't know, like the irony is just palpable. I really, you know, if I'm so good at this, then maybe you should also be good at this. And so how come you don't have a solution for me except to just blame me? Yeah, no, absolutely. There was that. It's funny though, because years later, I had a, an experience that kind of just added a different perspective to this piece, which was that my sister, so my mom and my stepdad had three children together. They're my half sibling, two sisters and a brother. And my oldest of those sisters is 10 years younger than me. And when it, she came to be time where the age I was to join the C organization, she told me, that my stepdad did come to her defense and was telling her not to join the C organization. I was selfishly a little upset about that, I guess. So I did the right thing to do at the time, which was I wrote a, a knowledge report on my stepdad. So I reported him, which is the right thing to do in Scientology because it's considered a bad thing that he was telling her not to join the C organization. And the funny part about this is that, so he obviously found out he got a copy of that report. He got in some kind of trouble for it. And he didn't speak to me for, I think, two years. But the punchline is that I saw them so little that my mom, after two years, had to tell me that, oh, by the way, he's not speaking to you. I'm like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? I was like, wow, that had such huge impact on my life. I didn't even notice. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Uh, that is really quite amazing. But of course, I mean, not even selfishly would you have a response to that. Whenever there's this kind of inequity with different children in a household, you're going to have a reaction, especially when there is such a huge discrepancy where you had to endure something that this other person won't have to. I don't hold that against them. I love them dearly. I, I really do. They don't know what I live through. They don't know about the cadet org. They don't know any of that. And they shouldn't have to. I looked after my siblings more than my mother did from when I was 13 until when I was 16. She went to work full time. I would look after them from noon until midnight, most days. My youngest sister was from when she was six, seven weeks old. But again, that wasn't their choice. And, you know, I'm glad that they didn't have the same childhood I had. Yes, that's very nice of you too. But also it says something about how there really isn't awareness of uh, kind of appropriate expectation of children at different ages and how much you were expected to be and do and sacrifice and endure at every different developmental stage uh, that is really not in line with what the expectation should be. The other thing was the requirement to do Scientology training from a very young age. I did not want to do it and I didn't want to do the auditing. I can remember when I was six, my mom was training to become an auditor or AKA a Scientology counselor. And she wanted to do her practice counseling on me. And 
it was miserable. At six, I was clearing all these esoteric Scientology terms that meant little to nothing to me at the time. I mean, I understand the theory of it now. I don't agree with it. I'm no, I'm definitely not a Scientologist, but I could explain to you the theory of it. But at six, I just remember feeling absolutely helpless. Cut to a few years later, I was the first time I did the basic communication course and I was doing the TRs. And there's so many things about that that is wrong for a child to be doing that. Like, for example, one was bulbing. You know, you're just supposed to sit there with another person in front of you. They're supposed to push all your buttons. Well, often it would turn sexual and like crude and really inappropriate for young children. If my kids were anywhere close to any of that, I would react very, very strongly. And yet this was the norm in Scientology. It was normal. So to have some guy trying to unbutton my shirt to see if he can get a reaction, you know, not appropriate for an eight-year-old. Absolutely not. It conditions you as a child to just accept anything that Scientology throws at you as normal and as okay and to never question anything and at one point during that whole process I was just crying and the person who was working with me who was my coach said you're crying I'm like no my eyes I just have something in my eye he's like oh well that's a reaction so we need to keep going I was like god damn it I just want to get out of here but even then I just couldn't say I hate this I don't want to be here because I knew if I said that it would just result in the exact opposite. (laughs) Right. I think also what you're portraying is this desensitization. And then I think you you almost have to develop your gauge for what you are willing to tolerate, what you should have to tolerate, what is right, what is wrong in terms of how people treat you. If you're not going to have a reaction or if it's disabled, your reaction is disabled, then you don't have that gauge that lets you know that something is really wrong. And then it limits your protections. Yes, definitely. So moving on with your chronology. So we'd moved to the US. I was being handled by recruiters. And meanwhile, I was doing auditor training myself. So starting at 14, I had started doing the different levels of training to become a Scientology counselor. That included learning how to security check, which is the Scientology term for interrogate someone using an e-meter. And again, this was, you know, at age 14, like learning about what Scientology calls the murder routine. Like if if you're having some kind of negative reaction, like, oh, I don't want to answer that, then you're supposed to do the murder routine. Well, did you kill somebody? Did you have sex with somebody? Did you, you know, all these deep and personal questions to find out somebody's deepest, darkest secrets is what I was trained to do at 14. And I was doing that training at Celebrity Center in LA. Um, Anyway, so by the time I was 16 and a half, I finally broke down and did join the sea organization. I was told I was going to be sent to Clearwater, Florida and do training up to their highest levels and all these promises that sounded like, okay, well, maybe that's more appealing than my current situation where I'm babysitting three kids from noon to midnight and making $20 a week and no education and no hope of any education, no plans. 
as I've reflected on it, it was like the path of least resistance. Being born into Scientology, joining the Sea Org is the path of least resistance. It's kind of what is the expected norm. And some kids were rebels and didn't do that. And they were always in trouble. And, you know, I don't know, I consider that people deal with situations in life in different ways. And I just was never a rebel. Like I said, my whole life had been a struggle vying for my mother's attention and just wanting her to love on me. And being a rebel would have pushed her away. And I wanted nothing to do with that. Not that I wouldn't have loved to rebel. The inner me would have loved to go to town. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Right. And you'd have reason to, but the risk was too great. Exactly. It, It really was. It was. And it's not like I had any other family to fall back on. That's the other thing. Growing up in Scientology, you're systematically estranged from any family or other connections who are not in Scientology. So it's a very insular and isolated upbringing and life, you know, and I think that that's intentional on many levels. So you not only don't have the resources, but you don't have the perspectives or life experiences to help you understand what you're living through. Right. Very true. So then you're in the Sea Org and then things changed in your life. Yeah. And so, so I joined in July, 1991, almost immediately the plans changed. Now I was not going to be sent to Clearwater, Florida. I was not going to do all that training. I was going to be sent to the headquarters. Well, to go to the headquarters, I had to have parental consent from my mom and I had to, she had to sign over guardianship of me to somebody at the property. So at 16, she signed over guardianship of me to someone that she and I had never met. Oh, wow. She was not allowed to know the location of that property because in Scientology, it's confidential. The headquarters in Hemet, California, ask any Scientologist, it's not common knowledge. And for example, if I would have told her, oh, I'm working in Hemet, California, I would have been in deep caca. <laughs> so I found myself at the headquarters, 500 acre secure compound. And quickly I learned that, oh, this is all of Scientology management here. Religious Technology Center, David Miscavige works here. All the top executives in Scientology work here. I was in so deep over my head. It was ridiculous. But Either way, you know, you roll, I rolled with it and did my best to get on my feet and kind of get situated. I quickly realized there was no way out of this place. It's not like I could just say, oh, actually, I changed my mind. I don't want to be here. No. <laughs> now you're in their world, in their complete control, and there's no easy way out. So just as an example, we lived in apartments in town. So that might seem innocuous. You go, oh, well, you drive to work every day. Oh, no, we didn't have cars. We were bused. There was this, there were security guards at the birthing where we lived, at the apartments in town. Day and night, there were security guards there. We'd get on the bus in the morning. We'd get accounted for. There was three musters a day where everybody would come together and get accounted for. And we'd work from, I think the issued schedule was our day would start at 8 a.m., and would end at midnight. And that wasn't always the followed schedule. For example, there was two or three years when I was working there, when I was in religious technology center at the upper, in the upper organization, where I slept zero to three, four hours a night, if I was lucky, extreme exhaustion. 
that was during the same time I'd lost a lot of weight. I was under a lot of stress. For six months, I was denied dining privileges. So that was, again, when I was in Religious Technology Center. Marty Rathbun escaped. And because I was the last person he had talked to before he escaped, of course, I didn't know he was going to escape. And because I was his immediate junior, I was assigned to receive a committee of evidence, which is basically like Scientology's warped justice, where you're assigned four people who are supposed to judge you for your crimes and find out if you're guilty or not guilty of the crimes you've been accused of. So during that time, I was not allowed to eat in the dining room anymore. And I could eat dinner, but I'd have to eat by this massive trash compactor on the property. Like ultimate degradation and humiliation, like not just standing next to a trash can, but standing next to like the trash for the entire property that reeks of just refuse and nasty. And I was just like, I'm not doing it. (laughs) I'll just starve. Mark would get me protein bars. I think I lived on like one or two protein bars a day for six months just because I, I refused. I was just like, I don't care. I'm, that was where the rebels started coming out <laughs> by that point. <laughs> right. And so you're talking about Mark. And so where in this did you meet Mark or when? Yes. Okay. So, so 1991 is when I started, I was moved to this property and Mark was there already at that time working. He's almost two years older than me. So I met him and he was just always, always a rebel, but in a good sense in that he was doing great and following the rules, but it's kind of hard to explain, but he was not like me. He was not a rule follower and not that he broke the rules and not that he was a troublemaker. He just, I don't know, he was stronger than other people I've met to date by a long shot. Anyway, we became good friends. And then, so I started working there in September, 1991. And in May, 1992, we agreed to date. I say date because you're you're not allowed to have any physical contact. You can kiss, but anything beyond that, you'd be in the, sent to the religious, the rehabilitation project force, RPF, which is basically like the slave camp to be reprogrammed and it takes anywhere from a year to 10 years to get through that program. So it was extreme by all counts. But anyway, because of that, many people marry very young. So we got married when I was 17 and he was 19 in August of 1992. Yeah. So I'll give you a good example how he's a rebel. So when you get married, you'd have, you would be living in a dorm and you'd have to go say, okay, I'm getting married. I need to be assigned a couple's room. Well, we had done that. And when we got back from our two days off to get married, there was no room available. Well, I had to go back to work immediately. Mark had one extra day off than I did. So I was in a two bedroom apartment with like two girls in one room and two girls in another room. Well, one of them had just escaped so she wasn't living there anymore so he took all my roommate stuff moved it into the other room and he just converted the one bedroom (laughs) into a a couple's room so by the time I got home that night he's like ta-da we got a room (laughs) that is amazing wow where there's a will there's a way right right anyway that's 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 a silly example but it's definitely an example of where he just 
you know, somebody wrote a report on him for doing that. And he's like, well, what are you going to say? They never, they never made us undo it. So <laughs> anyway, but at various different times, Mark would be, he was always either doing really, really well or doing really, really shitty. So there were like six months at a time where I would never see him. He would be restricted. Could had to sleep on the property. Couldn't even come home the whole time. We were on different meal schedules, so it was definitely the extreme opposite of a traditional marriage. In fact, when we escaped, that was a whole process to work through, even of kind of reevaluate your relationship and learn to live as a more normal married couple. That was a huge shift. But either way, in March of 1996 is when I was moved up and uh, posted in Religious Technology Center, and I was sent to Clearwater, Florida. So I worked there for almost a year and never saw Mark. In, I would say in the early 2000s is when conditions at that property had just become absolutely intolerable. David Miscavige was beating staff up on a very regular basis. Other people were beating other people up to emulate that. It just became a real dog-eat-dog world um, that was just utterly miserable. And of course, during all of this, it's not like you can tell anybody outside of that world what you're going through or complain or commiserate or any of that. It's just, that's your life. Get over it. It is what it is, you know, buckle up and do what you're supposed to do kind of thing. And again, for me, that was the conditioning I'd grown up with my whole life. So thinking of giving up or throwing in the towel was never really an option that I seriously considered. Yes, the little voice in the back room that I had locked and thrown away the key, she would have loved. (laughs) (laughs) But like, I, it's not like I ever talked with Mark about, oh, let's get out of here. I just didn't even have the balls to do that. Right. It's way too dangerous, especially, you know, with how you were treated up until then for tiny, the tiniest of infractions or even none at all. And I know that we have 15 minutes left, but I wanted just to let people know to buy the book blown for good ASAP. The full title is blown for good. Behind the Iron Curtain of Scientology. And it is such a good book. I also know that there were stories that you had along the way that probably weren't even able to make it into the book. So there's a lot more to to the a lot more, but it's a wonderful read. It's powerful. It's disturbing. It's victorious. I found myself feeling tired reading just the daily schedule and the grind. And I can tell he's a detail-oriented person because of the way that he writes. And so you get a real sense about sort of almost like hour by hour what it was like to be there. So please, everyone, please buy this book. Okay, so then then what? What happened next? Well, and like you said, there's many pieces and sub-stories along the way, but I would say ultimately Mark got in a lot of trouble for the stupidest thing. I mean, it's, it's so minutia. It's not even worth explaining. He was trying to get stuff done and he'd figured out a way to do it and then got in trouble for that. So he was told that he would, he was going to be sent to the RPF in LA, the rehabilitation project force. And long story short, regardless of the ins and outs that meant to him that he would never see me again. 
So he decided who's not going to do it, who's going to escape. And I had not been home at all at that point in maybe four or five days. I'd been working around the clock. And so we had um, Nextel radios slash phones. They weren't ours. They belonged to the organization. The organization paid for them, had the phone records, all of that. I don't want to make it sound like we had access to a, an unmonitored phone line because we didn't. But so he radioed me and said, oh, are you coming home? It was like two or three o'clock in the morning. And I said, well, I'm going to try, but I'm working. Anyway, needless to say, I didn't make it home. And so, and he made us escape. And we had, we talked about this with Leah Remini on the Aftermath show. Honestly, just honestly, I am not sure how I would have reacted had I gone home that night and had he said, let's go. I just don't know. I don't know. I would love to say, oh, yes, I would have said, oh, yes, let's run away off into the sunset. But I consider I'm a realist and I know the level of programming and I know the level of emotional duress and everything else that I'd been through up until that point. And honestly, it was I know I also know and I think I'm pretty realistic and honest with myself about this when mark escaped and it hit me that i would never see him again that's was like the straw that broke the camel's back for me because you know i just had that <laughs> that moment of like i've been married to this man for 13 years and now i'm being told he's a suppressive person really and at that point i just was like nope it's not true for me and so i kind of turned that one little seemingly harmless statement from Scientology from Hubbard, which is really a falsehood in Scientology context where he says, oh, what's true for you is what's true. No, that's how they lure you in. Ultimately, it's not that. However, in my mind at that time, I was like, okay, good. I'm going to apply that. <laughs> this is not true for me. None of this is true for me. And actually, Let's be honest. I want to get the heck out of here now. <laughs> right. I love it. I actually love when cultic programming comes back to bite them. I just, I find that entirely satisfying. Okay. So anyway, go ahead. I do too. And, you know, speaking of cultic programming though, another one is Hubbard's communication is the universal solvent. And so the last time I saw my mom and my stepdad after they had disconnected from us and hadn't talked to me but at that point for six years we were at my grandmother's funeral and I said that to my stepdad I said don't you believe that communication is a universal solvent oh my god the sparks that flew were phenomenal <laughs> but you know you have to go okay great if that's true you can't have it both ways you can't have disconnection and have communication be the universal solvent it just does not work that way anyway but yes, so I had just gotten to the point where I was like, that's it. I'm, I'm done. I'm out. And so anyway, it's a, it's a whole other long story of how I figured out how to get out of there. Because it was, seriously, it took me four days, I think, to figure out how I could possibly escape from there. And finally, I came to terms with the fact that I couldn't do it alone. I had to have Mark's help. I had planned, <laughs> I mean, at one point, you're don't laugh at me. I was so isolated that I had a motorcycle. It wasn't registered to drive on the road, but during mealtimes, I would go and look at a U.S. roadmap, and I had memorized all the U.S. highways from California to Kansas City and how much gas I would need for the bike 
to do that route. Mind you, this is January going through the Rocky Mountains. I hadn't realized that part. Anyway, it was, yeah. <laughs> so finally, I figured out a way to let Mark know that I needed his help. And even then, he didn't trust me. He thought I was trying to lure him into being brought back. He kind of knew, but he wasn't entirely sure, which, again, I understand. I had had a, along the way broken his trust and reported him and did what I was trained to do. So it was not unwarranted on his part either. But I did eventually escape and we lived through a lot after that, but we're here to tell the tale. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are. Yes, you are. And and stronger than ever. And yes. And how healing for you with all that you've been through and all the other stories. I was going to ask you about the messages that you've made sure to give your children as they're growing up. But also, I know as a fellow mom, sometimes the focus can be on your role as a mom. and it's also important the messages you've received or that you give yourself just for your own development. I'm glad you asked me about that. So when my second son was born, when he was about six months old, it suddenly hit me like this wave of grief, like, oh my gosh, what do I tell my kids when they realize they have no grandparents? The only grandparent they knew was my husband's dad, Bernie. And honestly, Bernie was the closest I ever knew to a dad amazing, kind-hearted soul. But, you know, it was hard for me knowing my kids will never know their grandparents. And what do I tell them? Because I knew when that happened to me as a child, when my dad left, I thought it was my fault. I remember distinctly, I was three years old and I thought I'd done something wrong. It's one of my earliest memories in life. And so I called Dr. Laura and I explained the whole thing. I never said the word Scientology because back then nobody it was still so litigious and, you know, not talked about, but she said, I know exactly what you're talking about and what you should do is only ever tell your kids the truth. And at least that way you'll know that they will never go down that path. As simple as that sounds, it really helped me just, just that simple advice. And, you know, like my oldest one day was when he was seven, he said, mom, when did your mom die? Like son, she didn't die. She's alive. But sometimes people make bad choices in life and she's part of an organization that has complete control over her and she will not talk to me. And both Mark and I have, we're united on that. We never say anything bad. It's just, it is what it is. And whether we're upset internally, sometimes angry, sometimes distraught, doesn't matter. We just are honest with our children about, you know, where our family are. And conversely, we've also said, you know, we have our family of choice and we think they're pretty damn good. And we love our family of choice. And the most important thing is surround your surround yourself by people who love and support you unconditionally. Because it is my firm belief, Scientology, no, there's nothing in Scientology that supports or allows unconditional love in the true sense of the word. Right. Exactly. I mean, you think about all the disconnection and, uh, and then unless you follow by the rules or do what you're told to do, then, you know, yes. Right. There's always this qualifier. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's fully entirely conditional on you playing by their rules and doing what they want you to do and all of that. And, and I, I don't, you know, there's nothing about that. I want my kids to always think for themselves and, you know, I always am like, you know, 
if I make a mistake, I tell them, yeah, I messed up. I should not have done that. And, you know, you told me something one time too, I remember actually that really helped me, which was that when we were going through our lawsuit and I was just one day crying, taking my kids to preschool. And I commented to you at the time, it really was stressing me out to have my kids see me upset. And you were like, well, why? I'm like, well, because I don't want them to see I'm upset. And I remember our conversation about it. And you, you know, obviously paraphrased, you may not remember it the same way. But my takeaway from it was, you know, people have good days and they have bad days. And it's good for children to learn. People do get upset, but it's okay. People do get angry, but it's okay. The funniest thing was um, I've talked to my kids pretty openly and tried to be as age appropriately honest. You know, I've never lied to them. I've told them things that they can assimilate at the age that they are, that they would agree with me. Even now, if I said, oh, remember when I told you X, Y, and Z? They would be like, yeah. Anyway, but one day after I took that away from our conversation and was talking to my, my oldest was like two and a half at the time. And he was like, mom, dad's having a, a rough day today. I'm like, you know what, son, you're right, but it's okay. He'll be better tomorrow. <laughs> I was just so grateful. Like, oh my gosh, it's a the the world doesn't have to end because and again I think that that was a strange offshoot from how I viewed emotions from being brought up in Scientology like being upset is a negative thing like a bad thing and I shouldn't ever be upset well sure it's a normal human emotion to experience grief to have good days to be angry to be happy to be elated it's totally normal and it doesn't mean you're a bad person or evilly intended just because you're upset about something. Right. Yeah. I mean, we we are, I don't know, I guess, blessed and cursed with a whole variety of emotions that we're capable of feeling. And I say cursed because sometimes we can feel such pain, but still that each one is valid and each one informs us about the reality of our situation or our reaction to it. And I think what's really good for kids to see is that you can get past that, that you can have a bad day and then a good day, but also you don't need Scientology to help you through that moment, that you can do it right with each other, with just being introspective. You know, you don't have to be dependent on this thing, this entity that's sort of sandwiched right in the middle of your, all your relationships and in your, in your head. I think being able to expel it out of your home have it really be preserved that the walls of your home really are this place of an oasis from it. And I'm sure you've really, you know, in, in a very conscious and maybe even subconscious way, really provided that for your kids, but then also for yourself. Because when you do things in a different way than what happened to you, you also heal yourself. Maybe for you to let people know what you're involved in now and if they're needing help and if they're needing to reach out and organizations for them to check out just so you can inform people about resources that are out there would be great. Sure. Yes. No, absolutely. Mark and I are both on the board of the Aftermath Foundation. For years since since we left, we've helped people to escape. But when the show aired, we weren't by any means the driving force behind it, but a mutual friend said, hey, we really should do something like form an organization to provide resources to help people get out. I mean, it's a small and starting foundation, but I, I'm extremely proud of the work that we do. We can't, many times we can't and don't share what we do, but 
I would just say that we've been able to do things I never thought would be possible. So <laughs> I'm just, it's, it's extremely rewarding. And, you know, my kids see that too. And, you know, we're like, yeah, we're helping people get out of there. And, and they know that. And for me, actually, it's the only right thing to do for what I lived through. And I did things I regret too, that, you know, I'm sure I hurt people and it was what I was required to do, but nonetheless, fixing and helping people escape from that high control organization is just so important. And there are resources and there's many, many people who volunteer for the foundation and do incredible work. I'm always glad to talk to anybody and there's books, there's the Fair Game podcast is an awesome, there's Tony Ortega's site, you, Chris Shelton, there's so many incredible, very insightful resources in terms of undoing the harm of Scientology that helping other people certainly contributes to my recovery. Yes, it does. And so um, more power to you. And yeah, isn't it nice to make a transition from, you know, helping the world in air quotes to actually helping the world? Yes, so much so. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for your time. It's always wonderful to talk. And I appreciate you taking the time to educate people and help people better understand. Because I know the question I've most struggled with is like, why were you in it for so long? I'm like, is there some part of being born into a cult that's unclear? It's not like I can just cry loudly at the hospital and demand to be given to a new family. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. It's a pleasure. And I'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you so much. Take care. One more thing before you go. I'm so glad you got to hear Claire today. It's always so nice to talk to her. And I'm so happy you're going to be able to hear the next part of our conversation next week. Claire talked about so many vital things, actually, things that really blow people's minds when they hear about these sorts of occurrences, things that people within Scientology or those who have been on the outs with Scientology for so many years, like me, have heard about over and over again. Well, we've become sort of desensitized to hearing these things. And I feel almost bad about being desensitized because no one should actually be desensitized to these things. And so I'm so glad you're able to hear about things like Claire at the age of seven being pushed into signing a billion-year contract. I don't think there are adults who can fathom what a billion years even looks like, certainly not feel like, because no one's experienced it, but a seven-year-old, and that somehow that was the norm because she had passed her classes and was qualified as a seven-year-old to make that decision. And also, just not being able to get an education, although she is a very smart woman, And she has actually spent a lot of her adult life educating others. The idea also that you don't get sympathy and that it's also very bad to give sympathy. What kind of world is that? And that being a victim is a negative term. Of course it is. When a group doesn't want to take responsibility for victimizing you, then they make being a victim something bad. So you can't admit to or really acknowledge that you're being victimized. 
Some of the things that also are so alarming is hearing how little time she got to spend with her mother and how she didn't really get to do the things that someone her age should be able to do. I also think something so interesting about this whole culture is that Scientology, among other groups, makes the followers, the ones who are really devoted into their own henchmen or henchwomen. They push them to go after people who are leaving the group, who might be speaking about their experiences, who might be counseling others who are thinking about leaving or who have left, like me, to go after them, to try to ruin them, to use their fair game policy, to go and walk kind of patrol in front of people's homes just to intimidate them, to harass them, to break into their internet. I mean, it is quite awful when you think about it. And when you think about that being the culture of a place that calls itself a church and actually gets tax-exempt status for being a church, Something that also happens at these times is that people then are afraid to go public with their stories, and then education of the public doesn't take place because people are too worried about letting people know what happened to them because they know there's going to be fallout. They know that there's going to be punishment and retribution, and sometimes people just don't want that to happen. But Claire is an interesting person, and I know we have commiserated in the past about why it is that we do what we do and speak out when we can, knowing that we're going to be harassed. And sometimes it's because you feel wrong not doing it. You feel wrong holding on to information that you know other people need to have in order to make safer decisions, in order to make fully educated decisions. And also for Claire, the fact that she has to deal with family members who are attacking her and doing, as she called, hate videos against her, even her own mother. And that that's all part of the norm in this organization is also so out there. And people within the system who know about this are desensitized to it, but they shouldn't be. You shouldn't be. You should be responding to it in kind of the right way meaning seeing how egregious that is, seeing how wrong it is, and also seeing what it does to everyone involved, even the ones who are pushed to do this harassment, that they're pushed to hit people while they're down. They're pushed to harass people who have been harmed, who have been hurt. And so I don't know how that helps you or helps the world, but that's always the excuse that's given, that somehow it's going to help humanity. And it never, ever does. The only thing it does is it ends up hurting the people that they're hurting, and it ends up making them look bad, making them look reprehensible. It has never saved the world in any way to behave this way. And so I applaud Claire for having the courage. And again, as I've said before, it shouldn't have to take courage. It should just be that people can tell their story. But when they're dealing with Scientology, it does take courage. And to know that 
it's important to be able to use your voice and to be able to follow your instincts and to be able to follow that internalized voice that says, I need to do this because if I don't, who will? I want to end with a quote. And I thought of Claire when I saw this quote. Do what you feel in your heart to be right, for you'll be criticized anyway. Eleanor Roosevelt. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.